Thank you for tuning in to the True Suspense podcast, completely free with no interruptions from advertising. If you enjoy what you hear, we would greatly appreciate it if you would follow or subscribe and rate and review our podcast. It helps new listeners find us. Please note that Season 4 involves sexual assault and other charges of criminal violence, so listener discretion is advised. Buckle up and get ready for True Suspense. I'm Arthur Perlstein, and this podcast from the True Suspense Collection is Body of the Crime. Here is Episode 4, Placing Blame. In April of 2012, once Josh Keedle was sentenced to 15 to 20 years in prison for the 2008 rape of a 15-year-old girl, everyone, including Ty Thomas's family, knew exactly where he would be for at least the next 10 years. But this failed to bring closure for those who loved Ty because they did not know where she was. By this time, the family had basically given up hope that Tyler Thomas was alive, but they still wanted to find her. And they wanted the case to be solved once and for all with the person responsible for what they were now sure was Ty's murder held accountable and brought to justice. There were many who believed that law enforcement had sufficient evidence to charge Josh Keetle with homicide, and, despite his conviction for rape, they grew increasingly frustrated that Keetle could literally be getting away with murder. Officials said, however, that an effort to prosecute him was seriously hampered by one inconvenient fact. Tyler Thomas's body had not been found. Ty's friends and loved ones did everything they could to keep at least her memory alive. On September 7, 2012, what would have been Ty's 20th birthday and the start of her junior year at Peru State, friends posted remembrances on the Facebook group page called Tyler Thomas is Missing that had been launched soon after her disappearance. One friend wrote that, quote, We are letting off balloons and saying a prayer in the parking lot at 7 p.m. We are also writing letters and tying them onto the Tyler tree. We love and miss you so much, unquote. Another posted that, quote, I have not forgotten the impact you've had on me and Peru State College. Happy birthday, Ty, unquote. In early December, on the anniversary of Ty's disappearance, students at Peru State declared a purple out for the evening's home basketball game. Purple had been Ty's favorite color, and a Facebook post with Tyler's photo placed against a purple background urged, quote, Everybody wear purple to honor Ty Thomas, unquote. 
While the family of Tyler Thomas were sure that Josh Keetle was responsible for her disappearance, as the months went by in 2012, they became increasingly aware of some disturbing details that had not been widely known. Details leading them to the conclusion that there were also others at least partly to blame for what happened to Ty. The family increasingly began to focus on the same question that Nancy Grace had asked back in December of 2010. We heard that question in episode 2, but here it is again to refresh your memory. What I don't understand is why a 29-year-old man with sex assault incidents in his past is allowed to live in the dorm. That's a good question for the authorities at Peru State College. It turns out that Nancy Grace did not know the half of it, because, as Ty's family would later learn, concerns raised in background checks and sexual harassment claims at Peru State College well before Tyler Thomas disappeared could have led to a very different set of circumstances. What happened to her, it seemed, could have been prevented. In early December of 2012, Ty's mother, LaTanya Thomas, and Kevin Siemens, Ty's father, filed a pair of lawsuits, one in federal district court in Omaha, the other in state court in Nemaha County, against the state of Nebraska, the city of Auburn, Nemaha County, the Nebraska State College Board, the Nebraska College Board of Regents, the University of Nebraska, and Joshua Keetle. The suits alleged that Tyler Thomas had been assaulted, abducted, and murdered by Keetle on December 10, 2010, and that employees of the college, the city, the county, and the state were negligent in failing to protect Ty from being attacked by him. Latanya Thomas was suing both in her personal capacity as Ty's mother and also as special administrator of Ty's estate. Timothy Ashford, one of the lawyers representing Ty's family, explained that they knew Ty was dead, quote, because she would have contacted her parents or friends, unquote. Ashford explained the enormity of the situation. This has been the worst thing that's happened in the life of that family. The lawsuits were seeking damages for the wrongful death of Ty Thomas, for her pain and suffering prior to her death, and for the severe emotional distress of Latanya Thomas and Kevin Siemens as Ty's parents and next of kin. Much of what was contained in the lawsuits focused on the very issue raised by Nancy Grace. Here is lawyer Ashford again. We believe that Joshua Keetle should never have been on that campus. What follows are some of the specific allegations in the twin lawsuits. Quote, The last known person who was seen with Tyler Thomas was Peru State student Keetle. Unquote. Quote, Defendant Peru State assigned Keetle, who was an older male student, to the same floor and a few doors away from freshman Tyler Thomas in the housing unit, unquote. Quote, 
Defendant Peru State admitted Keitel as a student when they knew that Keitel had criminal propensities, a criminal background, and had trouble prior to their admission of Keitel to the college and his assignment to the housing unit. Unquote. Other allegations specified that the state, city, and county were also aware of Keitel's criminal background before the attack, but failed to take appropriate steps to stop it. According to the court filings, the college had been negligent for failing to separate young female students from an older male student with a record like Keitel's and neglecting to adequately investigate his background or to take reasonable security measures, including hiring and training security personnel to respond to criminal attacks on campus and in the surrounding area. If the evidence is going to show, we believe, that there were some procedures that should have been in place at the time of the abduction and murder of uh, Ms. Thomas. In fact, according to the allegations of the legal complaints, the actions of the Board of Trustees of the Nebraska State Colleges, quote, showed deliberate indifference and or conscious disregard for the rights of female students and specifically the deceased, unquote. The complaints filed by the Thomas family left open the possibility that Josh Keitel had not acted alone. They asserted that, quote, Tyler Thomas fought back and attempted to protect herself during the attack by Keitel and possibly other unknown John Doe assailants, unquote. There was another claim asserted by Ty's family that many found puzzling since there had previously been no mention of it. Specifically, that school officials failed to protect Tyler Thomas because she was black and treated Keitel differently because he was white. Eventually, this claim would be dropped in one of the amended versions of the civil action. Several months after the suits were filed, in another amended version, lawyers for Ty's family agreed to drop the state, city, and county and keep only the Nebraska State College Board of Trustees, which governs Peru State College, along with Joshua Keitel as defendants. It is worth explaining just a bit about the difference between the lawsuit filed in federal court and the one filed in the state court in Nemaha County, since they are mostly so very similar. The suit in the federal court was based on a federal law claim as against the Board of Trustees, specifically that they had been in violation of Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972. Title IX was enacted in an effort to combat discrimination on the basis of sex in any educational program that receives federal funding, as most universities in the U.S. do. Sexual harassment is the relevant example here of what constitutes, quote, discrimination under Title IX, and in certain circumstances, a college may be subject to liability for student-on-student -student harassment. To give rise to a claim under Title IX, peer harassment must be severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive. 
So the lawsuit as to the Board of Trustees claimed that they should have realized that Keitel posed a threat of sexual violence to young women at Peru State and were deliberately indifferent to the threat. The federal court suit also included state law claims against Josh Keitel. In the lawsuit filed in state court in Nemaha County, the claims against the Board of Trustees were premised on the board's alleged negligence. If the college had done what it should have and could have to protect women like Ty Thomas, she would be alive and well. The Thomas lawsuits were filed near the end of 2012, and throughout the following year, there was no progress in the law enforcement investigation into Ty's disappearance and no trace of the young woman. In the course of 2013, the Board of Trustees of the Nebraska State Colleges asked the federal court to dismiss the civil lawsuit regarding the alleged wrongful death of Ty Thomas based on the fact that there was no proof she was actually dead. Lawyers for the Thomas family were frustrated but undeterred. They went to court in Nemaha County and requested issuance of a death certificate and submitted evidence that Ty had not contacted her parents, extended family or friends, and she had not touched her bank accounts, used her cell phone, or signed into Facebook since the day she disappeared. In October of 2013, Ty's parents each gave emotional testimony during a court hearing on the matter of a death certificate, explaining why they were convinced their daughter had been killed. On November 12, 2013, almost three years after she vanished, the Nemaha County District Court did as the family requested and issued an order directing the Nemaha County Attorney to issue a death certificate for Tyler Thomas. A victory of sorts, but a bittersweet one for the family and all who cared for Ty. Between 2013 and 2015, there were various maneuvers in the courts over the lawsuits, and through the civil discovery process, the Thomas family was able to obtain documents and information relevant to their claims. A review of the various court filings shows that a considerable body of evidence had been gathered that shed light on Josh Keitel's history of conduct and what was known by college officials prior to the disappearance of Tyler Thomas. What follows comes directly from court records. Between 2007 and 2010, Josh Keitel had transferred among several different Nebraska colleges, including Wayne State College and Midland Lutheran College, now Midland University. Keitel had previously attended Peru State College for a year at one point prior to 2010. When Keitel arrived back at Peru State in August of 2010, he was already on academic probation due to his poor grades. At that time, Keitel was 29 
and living in the same dormitory as 18 and 19 year old female students, including Ty Thomas. Keitel's academic performance in 2010 was quite poor, to put it generously. It became apparent that his performance would not improve as he was essentially failing all of his classes. On August 31, 2010, Keitel applied to serve as a volunteer strength and conditioning assistant for the Peru State women's basketball team. School policy required anyone applying to become a voluntary staff member to undergo a criminal background check and be approved by the college administration. However, the women's basketball coach allowed Keel to serve as an assistant prior to completion of the background check. When athletic director Steve Schneider learned of this, Keel's involvement with the women's basketball team was terminated pending completion of the background check. That check, completed by September 10th, revealed nothing more than minor traffic offenses. But something else gave officials pause. Around the same time that the background check was completed with no red flags, the security office at the college came to suspect that Keitel had stolen a laptop. Les Stonebarger, director of housing and security, launched an investigation, and at some point the Nemaha County Sheriff's Department got involved. On September 12th, Stonebarger received an email from one of his employees. In the email, the employee stated that a sheriff's deputy had located criminal records relating to Keitel from Fremont, Nebraska. Quote, Keitel was convicted of robbery of $300 and stealing a purse in 2009, and also has other burglaries, but he was not charged for them. He also has a forcible fondling on a 18-year-old female charge on record, but the charges were dropped. End of quote. After learning that nothing significant had turned up in the first background check, Stonebarger said he, quote, wasn't comfortable and talked to the sheriff who told Stonebarger that he needed to run a check using Nebraska's online database of state trial court information. Stonebarger then persuaded the college HR director to run an additional background check using that system. The second check was conducted on September 17th. In addition to the minor traffic offenses, the second check revealed a misdemeanor theft conviction from 2009 in Dodge County, Nebraska, the location of Midland University. There was, however, no mention of any allegation of forcible fondling. Peru State Athletic Director Steve Schneider decided he wanted to see what he could find out beyond the background check and so he contacted the athletic director at Midland Lutheran College. The Midland athletic director did not recommend hiring Keitel. Schneider asked why, but his Midland counterpart wouldn't share any specifics, just saying something to the effect that he didn't feel it would be a good fit for the program. In the end, Although the Peru State women's basketball coach was advocating for Josh Keitel to be an assistant for the team, Steve Schneider decided against it. 
He also told the coach that Keitel was not to have any contact with the women's basketball team and was not to be associated with the women's basketball team or the athletic department. During September 2010, two students at Peru State separately complained that Keitel sexually harassed them and on-campus disciplinary proceedings against Keitel were instituted by Peru State's Crisis Assessment, Response, and Evaluation Team, charging him with violations of the college's code of conduct. What follows is a reading of the written statement of the student in the first case, referred to in court papers simply as Student 1. It is not her real voice. I first ran into Josh. He asked me for a ride. I told him if he could tell me my name, I would. He cannot remember my name, so I told him to walk, and he did. The next time I saw Josh, he held the door open for me and asked if I was engaged. I told him no. He then replied with, good. He told me he had moved across the hall from me, and I told him I knew that. Josh then said he would be up to hit on me later. I walked up to my room, set my bags down, and heard a knock on the door. It was Josh. He said he came to hit on me. He told me that I was very pretty, I had a good body, just the way he liked. I just laughed it off. He then asked me if he had a chance with me. I told him to walk back across the hall to his room. Josh then left and I shut the door behind him. The last time I talked to Josh, he came down to the dormitory office when I was on duty. He told me again that I was good looking and had the type of body he liked. I once again ignored him. He then went into the game room and tried to get me to help him with his homework. I told him I did not have time because I was doing my own. He stayed down in the game room until I had to lock it up at 11 p.m. When I locked up the office, he came to the door and asked for a goodnight kiss. I told him no and walked up to my room. Josh was verbally harassing me every time I talked to him. I never felt uncomfortable until he asked me for a kiss and I was downstairs by myself. I was very clear when I told him no and since then he has not bothered me, other than telling me hello when he sees me in the hallway or around campus. Keitel gave a written response where he admitted that Student 1's statement was true. But he explained that his actions had been taken the wrong way and were meant as a joke. In the Peru State system, a student charged with violating the code of conduct could plead responsible or not responsible. Keitel pleaded responsible to the charge. With the sexual harassment charges pending resolution, on September 23, 2010, Peru Security Chief Stonebarger recommended to Michaela Willis, the college's Vice President for Enrollment Management and Student Affairs, that Keitel be removed from the dormitories if he pleaded responsible. Willis disagreed because she said that would not have been a typical response to a first offense involving conduct that had made other students uncomfortable but did not involve harm or threats. Instead, Willis recommended educational activity aimed at correcting Keitel's conduct, community service hours, and perhaps a probationary period with more extensive consequences to follow if the behavior continued. So, Based on his pleading responsible in connection with Student 1, Keitel was issued sanctions consisting of an online educational module and 10 hours of community service. 
The complaint of student number two was a bit more confusing. She began her statement by saying, quote, I have been experiencing some problems with Josh Keedle, unquote. Student two then described a pattern of comments by Keedle to the effect that he wanted her to be his girlfriend, and despite her saying no, he continued to text her and message her on Facebook. She became particularly concerned when, quote, he said he would only need one week and I would be his, unquote. Keetel later approached her when she was closing up an office in another dorm that she worked in at 11 at night and followed her back to where she lived. Another night, he did the same thing, though with his suite mate tagging along. Later that same night, Student 2 was chatting with Keetel's suite mate on Facebook. Student 2 described what then happened. Quote, I noticed at one point that the conversation changed abruptly and became all about Josh and how I should like him because he likes me. A few minutes later, his suite mate came down to the office and said that when he got up to go to the bathroom, Josh sat at his desk and started talking to me on chat. Josh attempted to act as his suite mate and try convincing me to date him. I was very angry and disturbed by this." Unquote. Based on this, Keetle was charged with violating a provision of the College Code of Conduct that prohibited, among other things, quote, inflicting unwanted physical contact on another person, unquote, and, quote, conduct that intimidates, harasses, or threatens the safety, health, property, or life of others, unquote. But this time, Keetle pleaded not responsible and the matter was referred to an administrative hearing panel at the college. During the hearing, Keetle gave his account of events, explaining that he met Student 2 on the first day of school, and over the next few days they began a brief physical relationship and slept together once in Student 2's room. However, she thereafter texted him that things were moving too fast, and they stopped seeing each other. A few weeks later, on the weekend of the first football game, there was a dance. Student 2 saw Keetle there and sent him a text to say, thanks for coming. They then began texting again. Keetle denied that he had used his sweetmate's Facebook account to chat with Student 2, claiming instead that he had simply asked his sweetmate to ask her some questions about what she thought about Keetle. Student 2 told the panel that the biggest thing that made her uncomfortable was the Facebook incident where Keetle had impersonated his sweetmate. She was sure that it was Keetle because his sweetmate told her about it. But she said what she really wanted was for Keetle to leave her alone and that he had left her alone since he received word of the complaint. She explained that she had trouble being blunt enough to just tell him to leave her alone. 
A panel member asks student two if she was scared to tell Keetle to leave her alone. Student two said that she was not scared, but that she was worried about upsetting him and explained that she did not like upsetting people. Keetle was able to directly question student two in front of the hearing panel. The exchange included the following. Keetle, did I not ask you like dozens of times? If you don't want to do anything with me, just tell me that. I will respect your wishes and leave you alone. Student two, you did ask me that. Keetle, did you ever say, Josh, I don't want nothing to do with you. You're harassing me. Please leave me alone. Student two, no, I did not. I was just trying to be respectful by not making you mad or... And I, I understand that I should have just said, leave me alone. But again, I didn't want you to get in trouble. I didn't ask for you to be put in front of a panel, and that's not what I wanted. On October 14, 2010, based upon the information presented, the hearing panel found Keetle was not responsible for the alleged code of conduct violation. However, it is important to note that student two would later give a statement that she was afraid of Keetle and that she had felt ambushed and intimidated during the hearing. This was because she, quote, was scared. Being in Keetle's presence made me uncomfortable and I found him to be creepy. Keetle had been harassing me, showing up at work, etc." Unquote. In fact, student two had been surprised to learn that a hearing would take place, and she did not know that professors she knew would be sitting on the panel, that Keetle would be there, that her statement would be read aloud, or that Keetle had made a written response. As a result, student two said she felt unprepared for the hearing that she was humiliated and treated poorly, and that she felt intimidated by Keetle's presence. Student two explained, quote, Although near tears, I didn't want to break down in front of everyone. I just wanted Keetle to leave me alone. I had never asked for a hearing and felt as if I were the one on trial for reporting his inappropriate behavior. You will recall that Keetle was sanctioned for his conduct with Student 1 with a requirement to complete an online education module and 10 days of community service. He was given until October 22, 2010 to fulfill these obligations, but he failed to do so. Keetle was then given an additional week, but he did nothing. In fact, he never completed the sanctions. Vice President for Enrollment Management and Student Affairs, Michaela Willis, concluded that although Keetle could have been dismissed from Peru State for failing to complete the sanctions, that would have been out of line with the college's general past practices. Instead, according to Willis, when a student failed to complete a sanction, generally a hold would be placed on his account so he could not proceed beyond that semester and college officials would try to help the student complete the obligation. Willis would later explain that Keetle's failure to complete sanctions did not warrant expulsion, 
because they were imposed in response to a single incident of sexual harassment and because the incident did not rise to that level of seriousness. You'll also recall that in the same month, October of 2010, Keitel kicked down the door to his dormitory room after he had somehow become locked out of the room. This triggered him being charged with a third violation of the college's code of conduct. Before it was turned over to law enforcement authorities, Keitel was required to attend a meeting with security chief Stonebarger regarding this incident, but did not do so. After missing that meeting, Keel was supposed to meet with Vice President Willis on December 1st, 2010, but he also missed this meeting. In an email to Residence Hall Director Seth Bingham regarding this failure, Ms. Willis stated that she would notify Keel that he would be required to meet with Stonebarger on December 6th, and that if he did not attend that meeting, he would be banned from returning to Peru State in the spring. That, of course, would have been after Ty Thomas went missing. So, to recap, at Peru State, the head of security had recommended that Keitel be removed from the dorms, and the Peru State Athletic Director, the Residence Hall Director, and the Vice President for Enrollment and Student Affairs were all aware of Keitel's conduct in the months before Ty Thomas went missing, and that he was ignoring any obligations the college had placed on him regarding that conduct. And Keitel had essentially been failing his classes. Only Vice President Willis, however, had the authority to remove Keitel from the dorms, and she was the final decision-maker when it came to Keitel's continued presence at Peru State. However, Ms. Willis could not be persuaded to do what she felt was, quote, out of line with the college's general practices. There is one aspect of all this where there was some disagreement over the facts. Les Stonebarger, director of housing and security at Peru State, insists that before Ty Thomas went missing, he had verbally informed the athletic director, the vice president for enrollment and student affairs, and the Director of Human Resources about the email he had received indicating that Keel had been convicted of robbery of $300 and stealing a purse, as well as uncharged other burglaries and the alleged charge for forcible fondling of an 18-year-old female. The three administrators deny this and claim they learned of the email only after Ty's disappearance. There appears to be no dispute, however, over the fact that months before anything happened to Tyler Thomas, Security Chief Stonebarger had recommended that Keitel be removed from the dorms. The Nebraska State College's Board of Trustees would file motions for summary judgment, seeking to have the judges in each court, federal and state, dismiss the lawsuit as against the board. These were not taken up by either court until 2015. A motion for summary judgment asks the court to decide a lawsuit without going to trial because there is no dispute about the key facts of the case or one party does not have evidence sufficient to raise a 
genuine issue of material fact on the elements necessary to prove the case. Any fact contained in the record may be used to support or oppose a motion for summary judgment. The record includes the initial pleadings, answers to interrogatories, deposition testimony, responses to requests for production of documents, and affidavits. The motion in the federal court was the first to be heard. In June of 2015, federal judge John Gerard heard arguments from attorneys on both sides. Attorney Vince Powers represented the family, and he argued that college officials knew about Josh Keetle's criminal history and were aware of reports of sexual harassment and assault involving Keetle, but nevertheless allowed him to live in the dorm with young female college students, including Ty Thomas. According to Powers, the college failed to protect Ty and live up to its obligations under Title IX to prevent sexual harassment. Ron Krauss, a prominent Omaha attorney, represented the Board of Trustees. He argued that the facts of the case simply did not show the board knew of a substantial risk of serious abuse, much less a risk of abduction and murder, as alleged. Judge Gerard promised to issue a ruling by some time in July. Both sides submitted detailed legal briefs. On July 25, 2015, Judge John Gerard issued his ruling on the motion for summary judgment in the federal court lawsuit. In a 20-page memorandum and order, the judge began by reviewing the names and positions of all those employed by Peru State College who were involved with aspects of the case. Then, acknowledging that, quote, it was apparent that Keitel's academic performance would not improve and, in fact, he was essentially failing all of his classes, unquote, Judge Gerard painstakingly marched through the various incidents and red flags that the Thomases alleged should have made the board realize that Keitel posed a threat of sexual violence to young women at the college. The judge examined the record under each of six different headings, which were 1. The Athletic Department's background checks on Keetle, including the formal criminal checks as well as the email received by Security Chief Stonebarger referencing a forcible fondling charge against Keetle, and the informal inquiry from Athletic Director Schneider to his counterpart at Midland Lutheran that led Schneider to order that Keetle was not to have any contact with the women's basketball team. 2. Incidents of sexual harassment, which focused on the charges of the two separate students accusing Keetle of inappropriate sexual behavior. 3. Stonebarger recommends removal which catalogued Security Chief Stonebarger's recommendation to have Keetle removed from the dorms that Vice President Willis decided not to follow. 4. Keetle's failure to complete sexual harassment sanctions, 
which acknowledged the fact that Josh Kiedel did not perform community service or participate in the educational module as had been ordered, despite having been given an extension, and that Vice President Willis found still did not warrant Kiedel's expulsion or removal from the dorms. And five, the door incident, recounting that Kiedel had kicked in the door to his room and later failed to attend meetings with college officials on the matter. Finally, six, Tyler's disappearance, which summarized the events and pointed out, quote, it appears that Kiedel is the only person alive who may know what happened to Tyler, unquote. The judge also noted that during the interviews with police, quote, Kiedel changed his story several times, but eventually placed himself alone with Tyler near the Missouri River early on the morning of December 3rd, unquote. For purposes of a summary judgment motion, the court must view the facts in a light most favorable to the side against whom the motion is brought. Therefore, the judge underscored that, quote, Thomas asserts that Kiedel is responsible for Tyler's death, and for purposes of the pending motion, the court will assume that a jury could reasonably find that to be true. The judge then proceeded to analyze the facts to determine whether a case could be made that the Board of Trustees was responsible, through acts of sex discrimination in violation of Title IX, for Tyler's abduction and death. Judge Gerard began by stating, quote, There is no doubt that if the facts alleged are true, Tyler experienced severe sexual harassment that qualifies as discrimination, unquote. But he made clear that the plaintiffs, Ty's parents, needed to show that the defendant was deliberately indifferent to known acts of discrimination which occurred under its control. The judge first considered whether there was evidence to potentially show that a school official with authority to have addressed the alleged acts of harassment had, quote, actual knowledge of discrimination. And he underscored that the knowledge had to be of acts that were, quote, severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive, unquote. Judge Gerard looked at the complaints of Student 1 and Student 2 against Kiedel. He concluded that, quote, neither complainant reported unwanted physical contact or threatening behavior, and neither of these reports amounted to the level of severe and offensive conduct necessary to qualify as discrimination under Title IX. Moreover, neither of these incidents involved anything even remotely approaching the same degree of severity as Kiedel's alleged acts against Tyler, unquote. The judge was quick to add the following, quote, This is not to undermine the very real discomfort that student one and student two no doubt experienced, 
nor is it to suggest that Keitel's behavior towards student one or student two should in any way be excused or condoned, unquote. Looking at the claim that Keitel had previously been charged with forcible fondling, the judge stated that this allegation did rise to the level of severity that would be required. However, he pointed out that this was a, quote, vague and terse description, unquote, contained in an email, and he found that, quote, the board had no knowledge of either the seriousness or the veracity of the allegation, nor why the allegation was ultimately not prosecuted, unquote. Judge Gerard continued by saying, quote, the two background checks conducted by the board failed to reveal any mention of this allegation or any other serious crimes, sexual or otherwise. The judge next considered the so-called red flags, including the fact that Keitel was an older male living in proximity to young female students, that he was essentially failing all of his classes, and that he committed what lawyers for the Thomas family called a, quote, violent felony when he kicked down his door, thus demonstrating his antisocial and violent tendencies. There was a problem with these red flags, according to the judge. In his words, quote, simply put, these matters do not involve sexual harassment or Keitel's conduct toward women, nor do they demonstrate that he posed a substantial risk of sexually assaulting a fellow student." Unquote. As to the fact that Security Chief Stonebarger had recommended Keitel be removed from the dorms, the judge found that Stonebarger did not have any extra information that would add to the actual knowledge requirement. Judge Gerard did acknowledge several things. He said that following through to make sure Keitel completed the sanctions would have been prudent and that, quote, Keitel may even have been emboldened by the fact that nothing came of his failure to complete those sanctions, unquote. However, he said that, quote, a jury could not reasonably find that a known or obvious consequence of this failure to follow through was that Keitel would sexually assault and murder another student, unquote. The judge also said, quote, it certainly appears that student two was treated poorly and that the board could have handled her hearing and complaint more competently and with greater sensitivity, unquote. However, he concluded that this was not, quote, evidence from which a jury could reasonably conclude that a better hearing for student two would have resulted in a different outcome for student two's complaint or uncovered facts showing that Keitel posed a substantial risk of abducting or sexually assaulting another student. Lawyers for Ty's parents had made much of the fact that had the college investigated Keitel with greater care, more would have been revealed. The judge acknowledged that the board was, quote, far from thorough and perhaps even negligent, unquote. However, he emphasized that, quote, 
the standard for liability under Title IX is not satisfied by knowledge that something might be happening and could be uncovered by further investigation. The standard is actual knowledge." Unquote. In concluding, Judge Gerard said the following, quote, The board did not have actual knowledge of facts suggesting that Keel posed a substantial risk of abducting and sexually assaulting a fellow student. What happened to Tyler is a profound tragedy, but the law does not permit this court to judge the board with the benefit of hindsight. Unquote. Vince Powers, lawyer for the Thomases, said the family was disappointed by the ruling, but made it clear there would be an appeal. Powers said, quote, This is just a stumbling block that we will overcome. Unquote. On August 12, barely two weeks after Judge Gerard dismissed the Board of Trustees from the lawsuit in federal court, lawyers for both sides were in state court in Nemaha County, where Judge Daniel Bryant listened to their arguments as to why he should or should not dismiss the case against the board in the state court. In state court, there was no issue involving Title IX. Instead, the plaintiffs only had to prove that the Board of Trustees, acting through Peru State College, was negligent. In other words, did the college have a duty to exercise care for Tyler Thomas, and did it fail to exercise due care? If so, was it reasonably foreseeable that the damages to the plaintiffs would result from that failure of due care? A week later, on August 19, 2015, Judge Bryant issued his ruling. His finding hinged on whether the college should have been aware that there was a foreseeable risk that Keitel's conduct would result in the abduction, rape, and murder of another student. The judge found nothing in the record indicated such a risk. As Judge Bryant put it, Quote, While the plaintiff's counsel made a compassionate presentation for his clients by assembling various faults with Keitel, the totality of what is in the record known by the board of Keitel prior to December 3, 2010, falls far short of what is necessary to present a factual issue of foreseeability to a fact finder. It would be a quantum leap in foreseeability, unquote. As with the federal court case, attorney Vince Powers promised to appeal. In both cases, there was a silver lining, if you could call it that. While the Board of Trustees of the Nebraska State Colleges was dismissed from the suits, Josh Keitel was not. In fact, Josh Keitel exercising his Fifth Amendment constitutional right against self-incrimination declined to respond to the allegations against him and refused to have his deposition taken or provide other evidence. So, default judgments were entered against Josh Keitel in both cases. A jury would ultimately have to decide what, if any, damages 
Virtue Award. This was not the criminal prosecution that the Thomas family had hoped for, but it was something. Their lawyer, Vince Powers, put it this way, quote, It is important that Keitel be held accountable for Ty's death, and the only way we can do that in our civil justice system is with a verdict that honors her life, unquote. In May 2016, a civil jury in Nemaha County, in their judgment against Keitel for the wrongful death of Tyler Thomas, awarded the Thomas family a record-breaking $2.64 billion in damages. That's billion with a B. This included $80 million for her wrongful death, $100 million for pain and suffering caused to her family, and $30 million for emotional distress. The remainder, $2.4 billion, was the jury's award for punitive damages. Since Keitel had no assets and was serving a jail sentence, neither the Thomas family nor anyone else expected them to be able to collect anything on the civil judgment. Their lawyer, Vince Powers, said that for the family of a woman whose body hadn't been found, the jury's verdict showed her life was valued. Powers said, quote, it was important that Josh Keitel, for all time, has been found to be responsible for the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Ty. With no developments in the criminal investigation, and Keitel coming up for parole in just a few more years, there was widespread concern that the mystery would never be fully solved, and someone would get away with murder. Join us next week when we learn what happened to the cases against the Board of Trustees on appeal and hear of a dramatic announcement regarding a solution to the mystery of what happened to Ty in the conclusion of Body of the Crime, Episode 5, Corpus Delicti. Body of the Crime is a production of True Suspense Podcasts written and narrated by me, Arthur Perlstein. Music, sound engineering, and post-production by Guy Bainbridge and Walls End Studios. Special thanks in Episode 4 to Tara Morgan. Be sure to visit truesuspense.com for more information about this podcast and other True Suspense productions. If you like what you hear, please help spread the word don't forget to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to the podcast. It helps new listeners find us. Thank you.